to the Gateway Research Organization podcast. Research and extension led by farmers for farmers. Come grow with us. Welcome, everybody. I'm Stacey Murray with the Gateway Research Organization. We're a nonprofit agricultural applied research association based in Westlock, Alberta. We're excited to welcome you to tonight's episode four of this fourth season of Wednesday Night Networking. The session is being recorded and will be shared as a podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. You can find it by searching Wednesday Night Networking, Sustainable Agriculture, or the Gateway Research Organization. So be sure to check it out if you'd like to catch up on any of our past episodes or re-listen to tonight. Everyone is welcome to ask questions tonight of Gabe Brown, our guest, or Steve, our host, by entering your questions in the chat. I will keep track of them so that we can take them in order. I'll ask that everyone mute their mic until it's your turn to talk. If you have a question and would prefer not to speak or you don't have a mic, just indicate that in the chat and I'd be happy to read your question out for you. At the end of the session for the after networking networking at 7.30, that's when we stop the recording. Everyone can turn on their mics and video and conversation should be free flowing, kind of like coffee after an in-person workshop. So with that, we can get underway. I will turn it over to Steve to introduce our guest himself and tonight's topic. Thank you, Stacey. Great turnout tonight, as I expected. Uh, Gabe Brown, one of my regenerative rock stars. I've uh, been following uh, Gabe for a long time. Pretty excited to have him tonight. This is our second Mean Wednesday Night Networking. He, Gabe was with us on the first season. Uh, this is season four, so we got him back as a as a guest again now. Get too far into introductions here. You dedicate tonight to Sandeep Name research organization's uh, manager car accident this spring and he was very gung-ho and very excited about this this wednesday night networking and we got it started you know like i said three four years ago went on board right away with us on when, when i brought this idea to him and he, he loved the idea so tim and wish he was here tonight so i'd like to dedicate tonight to uh, sandy i'm steve kenyon with greener pastures ranching been on this you know three three and a half seasons here now and I would just like to thank everybody continuing this long. I mean, we've had some really good turnouts. I never thought it would be as popular as uh, as it is. Originally, when I had this idea, it was when COVID hit because the presentations that I was doing on Zoom and on Windows Teams were very empty. They me to do a presentation. I'd talk to a bunch of blank screens. And what I thought was, we're missing the networking. So I said, you know what? We're going to start up a session that is just networking. So that's what we did. When we're done at 7.30, we don't turn the screen off. We're going to leave it open. We call it after networking, networking, a chat, and you guys can talk about whatever you want. That's the whole idea behind this is to uh, like-minded people together. So really excited and, and really happy at, at how well this has gone over the years. So Gabe, he's a pretty big name, does a lot of travel and does a lot of talking. And uh, I'm pretty proud to have him here. And I'm pretty proud to call him one of my friends too. So we're going to talk a little bit about the future of food, I believe, tonight. Um, but I'm going to let uh, Gabe kind of do a bit of an introduction. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Gabe. And where do you want to start the topic? And I know it doesn't always stay that way. If somebody's asking a question that takes us on another tangent, we dive right in that tangent with them. So have at her, Gabe. Uh, thank you, Steve and Stacy. It's really a pleasure of mine to be here with the Gateway Organization. And I can't believe it's been going on four years since I was asked. I'm like, where does time go and fun? But for people to come together and network and, and 
You know, one of the things I'm most proud of with quote movement of regenerative agriculture is that no matter where I go, where I travel all over the world, involved in space, such as those of you on this evening are willing to share and to discuss and openly talk about what you're doing on your own farms and ranches. And, you know, it's that we should not pit one segment of agriculture against another. That's not what we're about. What we're networking, how do all of ourselves and our own operations forward? And so I love forums like this. Let's come together and talk and discuss and share ideas. And then how do we help each other to move forward? You know, so often in this world today, we tend to see where there are certain factions of society that are focused on their own agendas. And one of the things that I'm big and many others are about touting is how do we come together to find what I like to call common ground for common good? You know, I spend the majority of my time now in front of boards of directors, CEOs, heads of large corporations, farmers, ranchers who are wanting to understand, okay, how do we how do we further our own agenda? And so what I like to do is I like to get on those calls or in person in front of a group and I try and find their pain points, so to speak. What are they most interested in? And you know, I would have never thought that a rancher from North Dakota would be standing in front of boards of directors of multinational companies and they're trying to glean information from me, but I try and first ask them, where does your interest lie? What do you need? And so often what I find is there's some boards of directors or CEOs that are interested in, well, we need to be able to tout what we as an organization, as a company are doing to mitigate climate change, or we as a company need to tout what we're doing to make this world a better place. What are we doing for clean air, clean water? What are we doing for profitability in our rural communities? What are we doing for on-farm profitability? And so what I try and do is spin it. Okay, how do I take what they're interested in and then turn it so that whatever their pain point, so to speak, is I try and focus on how do we use regenerative agriculture and farmers and ranchers in particular to address their pain point? Because I don't care where your interest lies. Is, is it in climate change? Is it in farm and ranch profitability? Is it in clean air, clean water? Is it in desertification? Is it in revitalizing rural communities? Or 
As Steve mentioned, one of the topics we're going to get into this evening, nutrient density of food, regenerative agriculture is part of the answer to all of those. And so all of us on this webinar this evening have an interest in that. And it can benefit not only ourselves, but society as a whole. You see, I really believe that as a society, you know, so oftentimes we're pitted against each other and we focus on the negatives and what we have, you know, uncommon between us. But in saying that, I really believe as the human race, we can agree on 85 to 90% of the things out there. Why can't we set aside our 10 to 15% of our differences and work together on those 85 to 90% of the things we agree on? Let's come together to find common ground for common good. And if we do that, we will move forward, not only ourselves and what we want, but what's best for society. So that's what I'd like to focus on. And and, you know, I've kind of dedicated the rest of my life to that. How do we come together to find common ground for common good? So with that, Steve, I'll, I'll open it up and we can take this any direction anyone wants to. Yeah, Gabe, one of the things I've seen in the in our society today is that there's no longer the ability to agree to disagree. That 20% we don't agree with, people get upset and they get offended and they get mad. It's okay to disagree with someone and still respect the conversation. But boy, that doesn't happen very often anymore. So yeah, I think we we can move ahead as a society with what we can uh, agree on and what's for the you know greater good. And and you know, let's keep some good morals and values and and uh, be nice. <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right, Steve. And if my wife was in this room right now, she would tell you that. We probably disagree on more than 20% of the things, but yet in saying that we've been married closing in on 43 years together. So common ground for common good. We can agree to disagree, but that doesn't mean we have to be hostile towards one another. That doesn't mean we can't come together for the good of, of all. Steve, I do have a question that was sent in before tonight's call from Coley, who I actually see is on the call tonight. Do you have a microphone that you can unmute yourself and ask your question? I do. Yeah, in, in one of the presentations you had given, you mentioned that there was a 4% soil organic matter required before you'll see protozoa start to proliferate in the soil. So I, that's one of the numbers I got from you. I'm, I'm wondering why that is, or you're shaking your head no, is there a revision to that? Yeah, and, and realize, Coley, thanks for your question, and it's a good one. I did not mean that 4% is a set-in-stone number. It depends on context, where you're at. Realize there's those semi-brittle environments of that where it won't have to be 4%. We can certainly see protozoa numbers that are active and have a meaningful difference at much less than that. I was just using a broad range overall. Uh, typically, three and a half to four percent, we see an exponential increase in protozoa and the meaningful effect they have. But if you're in a semi-brittle environment, 
you're going to see protozoa uh, have a positive influence at lower percentage of uh, percentages of organic matter than four percent. Typically, we see that three and a half percent, though four percent. Boy, it really picks up as far as soil function and nutrient cycling. Good question. Okay, so if, if I can, just real quick, I'm uh, sure. I'm in a flood irrigated uh, orchard, and I have two point three percent, which is almost two and a half. Well, it's one and a half times what it was when I bought the place a few years ago. Right. But my my PLFA and genetic testing show zero protozoa at all. I have great bacteria and fungi, but zero protozoa. Mm -hmm. Do you know, if I might ask, do you know offhand your mycorrhizal fungi numbers? I don't know the number. I know my bacteria to fungi ratio is about 50 to 1 but I don't know the actual mycorrhizal fungi number off. Okay, that, that, that's fine. That just because you see zero on a PLFA, you still have protozoa there. It just means they're not identifiable as to the exact classification. So don't think that you have zero. And I would ask you if you're seeing a positive impact on nutrient cycling. If you've been able to cut back on your synthetic inputs. So I've I've cut my synthetic inputs almost to zero, but I've I've started yeah. using John Kemp's uh, advancing eco ag. The the NPK is almost zero, you know, but it's focused more on plant response instead of you know replacing plant nutrition. Mm -hmm. Now, now realize a big part of that. That's great. Fantastic. My hat's off to you. I just don't want you to get where you're just substituting one input for another. So it's good that you're moving down the path, but you should be able to eliminate all of those if you're implementing the principles, rules to drive the processes over time. Okay. It's not going to happen overnight but over time. So that's all good. And that's indicative that you are getting a healthy functioning nutrient cycle. That's all good, all positive. Keep going down the path you are, but keep challenging the system and removing accordingly. Very good. So I'll add a little bit to that. Coley, you said your fungal to bacteria ratio or, or bacteria to fungal ratio was 50 to one. So 50 bacteria, one fungal. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's twice as good, twice, two times better than last year, but I know I'm okay. still way out of whack. Okay. So one thing that I learned a few years back is that, um, I mean, ideally you want to be like a one-to-one -one is what our goal is to have a nice forage stand. Too much fungal gets you too many woody species, too much bacteria will end up getting you some weeds, right? So if you want to move it towards fungal, you need to trample dead plant material because the fungus likes to eat mm -hmm. dead material. If you wanted to move it the other way, like I, that's my problem is I have too many woody species coming in. I'm, I'm in a, you know, a forested area, gray wooded soil zone. I get rose bushes and willows coming in. I need to trample green plant material to move it back towards more bacterial. So you're going to go the other way. You need to let some stuff get mature and let it, go to seed maybe even, and then trample it into the ground. And then that'll okay. maybe try and balance out your uh, ratios a little bit. Okay. Realize though, though, Coley, on a PLFA test, 
a reading fungal back to bacterial ratio of 0.25 to one is equivalent to one to one because of how they measure that. Most people don't understand that. 0.25 to one is the same as one to one, okay? It's because of the um, algorithms they use. So don't look for a one to one. 0.25 to one is equivalent to one to one on a PLFA. Okay. Thanks, Gabe. Daniel has asked a question in the chat. Yeah, I would love to have some, here's some thoughts on how to make the decision between producing your own winter feed versus buying feed. Like we have a, a six month winter and sometimes really harsh. And so I'm trying to extend grazing as long as possible, but I'm not at um, year round grazing yet. But so cycling nutrients versus inputting nutrients and how to calculate that economics is, is one thing I, I've found a struggle. Yeah, Daniel, and great question. I'm smiling here because of his expertise in your environment. I'm going to turn this over to Steve. Okay, you know? I can do that. Yeah, we definitely want your input after, though, Gabe. So I'm going to basically tell a story for this one. Years ago, I took the Ranch for Profit course, uh, learned how to do a gross margin analysis, came home and learned that my cows were losing me money. I was doing a pretty good job at feeding. I was bale grazing pretty cheap. I was uh, had good calving rates, good weaning percentages. Like everything seemed to be going well, but I was broke. And then I figured out that my cows were losing money because they were paying too much for grazing, which was weird because it was my pasture and I'm supposed to be this good grazer. And But the numbers didn't work out because the opportunity cost of grazing, like my custom grazing, made me have to pay the same rates. And that was my biggest cost was my grazing rates. I could feed cheaper than I was grazing back then. So I sold my cows and all of a sudden my all, you know, all of a sudden I went into custom grazing and I was going along pretty good. My cash flow was pretty good. And I realized all of a sudden I don't have nutrients coming in, right? When I got rid of my cows, I stopped buying hay. And that was a concern for me. I'm like, well, where's my fertilizer coming from? And back then I thought it was fertilizer, but now I know it's actually more water holding capacity than it is fertilizer. So I started doing some numbers. I crunched a bunch of numbers. I looked at some government studies. They had some a study through the, the U, or government of Alberta here. They took the uh, NKP and S out of a ton of hay that's fed to a cow and then measured how much comes back out in the manure. And anyway, long story short, they came up with like, just under $16 a ton of NKP and S that comes out the back end of a cow. I converted my numbers. I ended up coming up with 30 cents per dry cow per day in fertilizer value or water holding capacity value for me. The calculation was fertilizer. Then for every day I fed a cow on my land and I was given that away because I was no longer buying hay. So I started looking at numbers on, on paper and I'm going to use easy numbers here. Let's say it costs me $2 to feed a cow in, in feed. I'm using today's prices, maybe a little closer. 30 cents of that actually is fertilizer value to my custom grazing. So 30 cents I charge out to my custom grazing now as a fertilizer bill. And that reduces my feeding cost down to $1.70 now for my cow. So there is a value there because I didn't, I wasn't getting it before. So to me, there's a, a huge value in importing that feed 
that being said, your hay profit center is a completely different profit center. You need to do a gross margin analysis on that, sell it to yourself at market value to be able to figure out is it worth buying it or whether it's worth producing it yourself. That's a whole different profit center. Depends on the environment, depends on the year, right? At 12 cents a pound right now, some of these hay guys are making some money. But they also have to remember they're exporting nutrients off their land. Whereas I'm buying it, I'm importing nutrients onto my land. So there's a big value there. And, you know, over the last 20 years of doing that, the carbon I have added to my land, I don't think I can put a real value on that. That has been tremendous, the amount of carbon I've brought in doing that. So I'm a big believer in buying feed. That being said, I can't tell you what the gross margin is on your you know, hay profit center either way, because every environment's different. I've been totally proven wrong in different environments doing gross margins because the market values are different. I, I don't know if I really answered your question, but yeah, you got to know the numbers. You got to crunch some numbers to, to make those decisions. Yeah. And very good point, Steve. We need to realize that, and Steve hit on it here, we have to understand our costs of production. Gross profit analysis, like Steve said, realize that, you know, I work with uh, and our company works with a lot of ranchers all over North America. And it absolutely amazes me how few people really truly understand what it costs them to put up a ton of feed. Very few understand it. When you take into account the cost of a tractor and a baler and a rake and a haybine and the cost to haul it, the cost to feed it, and opportunity cost, as Steve said, man, I tell you what, it's tough to do yourself. Now, in saying that, if you ask Gabe Brownwell on your ranch, do you put up hay? Yes, we do. But the reason for that may be different than what most people think. It has to do with cost of production, but it also has to do with nutrients, as Steve said, and in the nutrient quality of the feed you put up. Because it becomes very, very difficult for us to purchase the forage quality that we're able to put up ourselves and realize, so on our ranch, what we do is we have a large number of acres of what once was cropland that we seeded back to very diverse perennial forages, 20 plus different species and we do make hay on some of those acres, but then that hay is kicked out of the baler with sisal twine left right there and we bale graze right there on the land where it's produced. And then we are only grazing those acres about once every four or five years, bale graze. The rest of the time, the other four years or so, it's in a grazing system where we're grazing, trampling, dung, urine, putting it on. The goal is, and Steve hit the nail on the head, we don't wanna be exporting carbon. Carbon's our most precious commodity. 
We don't want to be exporting it. Very seldom, and realize we work with a lot of producers who export forage. That's a losing proposition, probably 95 plus times out of 100, if you really look at the numbers. It's very difficult to put up hay no matter what you're selling it for and come out ahead. It just isn't going to work. If you are putting up hay, you better be feeding it on your own land, keeping it there, cycling that carbon back. I will be honest, though, and to get back to Steve's point, if we could purchase hay of the phytonutrient chemical compounds, the diversity we need to properly grass finish our beef, we would be buying it all. We would not be putting up hay for ourselves. Unfortunately, right now, we're just not able to buy that quality at a price point we can afford. So that's why we do what we do. I hope that uh, kind of answers your question there. Steve, anything else to add to that? We had a kind of a follow-up question. I'm gonna jump a little bit out of order here from Tim. Um, and you've mostly answered this, Gabe, but he's concerned about buying versus growing hay because most of the hay they're buying is being grown on nutrient depleted soil with lots of inputs and potentially herbicides. Steve, did you have any other follow-up thoughts to that as well? Yeah, I can add a little bit to that. I mean, yes, we've got nutrient depleted soils. However, the carbon that you're bringing in is extremely valuable. The nitrogen, the hydrogen and the oxygen. Okay. I learned years ago from uh, Dr. Christine Jones, another regenerative rock star of mine, 97.5% of every plant, so the, the elemental makeup of every plant is just those four nutrients. Okay, so for me to bring that in, my goal is to bring in that carbon. We improve the water cycle. If we hold on to the water, then we can get the biology. Then the biology can help build that perpetual fertility that we need, right? We actually only need 2.5% from the soil. The other 2.5%, I mean, everything else comes from the air. So to me, bringing in that carbon is number one to get the water cycle fixed. That's my number one priority. If I can get that going, the rest falls into place, right? I can bring in a mineral package for my cows. You know, in my situation, I'm a custom operator. I bring in a mineral package, 80% of that goes into the cow, comes out the back end. I'm, re I'm replacing all those micronutrients. It doesn't happen right away. It's a slow process, but over, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, my soil's in really healthy shape. And I haven't brought in any fertilizer other than a mineral package. So I fall back on that. Bringing in that extra carbon is my number one priority. So as far as buying feed, I just have one follow-up question. I know at least one local producer that is buying alfalfa pellets and feeding alfalfa pellets and straw. Uh, anybody else have any experience with that? Because there's kind of a guaranteed uh, nutrient analysis with that. And uh, sometimes when you're just buying from the neighbor, you really don't know what you're getting, right? I looked into alfalfa pellets one time, and so I didn't go any further, but uh, that's about all I know. I had a neighbor who was a grain farmer who was actually... A couple of years ago, he said he was adding alfalfa pellets with his nitrogen fertilizer into his grain. He was doing 50-50. So he was not only adding nitrogen to his grain crop, but he was actually adding carbon as well. So 
I, I'm not sure the economics on that. I didn't, but it was a very interesting concept. Thought I'd throw that out there. Okay. Now we're ready to take this to the next level. So agree on that, you know, agree, certainly agree with what Steve said. He's absolutely correct. But this gets into one of the things that I suggested to Steve and Stacy that we talk about this evening is the future of ag and where things are going. And one of the places that is groundbreaking research that is being done is in the area of phytochemical nutrients and these phytochemical compounds that are found in plants, okay? And the best analogy and description that I can give to impose on you of the importance of this is our own human health. When we consume food, are we feeding our bodies? No, we're really feeding our gut microbiome. When we're feeding our livestock, are we feeding a cow? No, we're feeding their gut microbiome. And, you know, us as human beings, we're more microorganisms than we are human beings. Cows are more gut microbiome, the biology in their gut, than they are a cow. So Dr. Stefan Van Vliet, Dr. Fred Provenza, and Dr. Scott Kronberg are doing some groundbreaking research on phytonutrient compounds and the differences found in and on various farms, ranches. And we at Understanding Ag are working with them on this project. And they've been doing research now for the past five plus years started in the southeastern U.S., moved to the northern Great Plains. Our ranch has been a part of that research the last couple of years. And what they're doing is they're comparing the phytonutrients found on quote-unquote regenerative farms and ranches as compared to that found on neighboring conventional, conventionally farm, farms and ranches. So what they're looking at is they go and do a very in-depth analysis of the soil microbiome. And we all have heard, we all know, there's more microorganisms in a teaspoonful of healthy soil than there are people on this planet. So what Steve's working on on his ranch in Alberta, how do we get a healthy soil microbiome by adding carbon? He's absolutely right. That's what we got to do. So we we compare like soils. So Brown's Ranch, so Central North Dakota, neighboring ranch, same soil type, because you got to remove that variable. You can't be comparing sand to clay, etc. Same soil type. Then they do an analysis: how much biology is in each of those soils? And they they come out, they do soil probes, they send it in for analysis, PLFA, et cetera. Then they analyze the plants. They look at diversity of the plants growing in that ecosystem. 
what plants are growing on Brown's Ranch, what plants are growing on the neighboring. Then they pull those plants, they clip forages, send those in for analysis. Then they watch the animals grazing, cows on Brown's Ranch, cows on the neighboring ranch. What plants are those animals consuming? They follow the cows around, clip those plants, because face it, you know, on our ranch, we've documented close to 150 different plant species. But cows aren't going to eat all those, close, but not all. So which are they eating the most of, which less? Do the same on the neighboring. Then they take fecal samples from those cows. They actually go out, follow a cow around until it plops, collect that sample, send it in for analysis. Then when we harvest the animals, so on our ranch, we're doing grass finished on the neighboring, in the feedlot that they have, they're sending their beef off. They actually pull the same type, ribeyes, ground beef, you know, chuck roast, whatever, send them in for analysis. What they're able to determine then is the phytonutrient compounds that flow through from the soil to the plant, to the animal, to the final product. Now we're doing the same thing with grains, same variety of wheat, same variety of fruits, vegetables. We're doing this all over. What we're, what they, and I'll say they, I don't want to include myself in this. I'm not smart enough to be part of this conversation, but what they are finding is that the diversity of the soil microbiome, the plant microbiome above ground biodiversity is directly related to the phytonutrient diversity in the food. So what does this mean to us as farmers and ranchers? Those of you on this call today who are producing a food or fiber, what you're producing on your farm or ranch, the nutrient quality of that is directly related to the biodiversity in your soil. So it is our hope, Dr. Van Vliet, Dr. Provenza, Dr. Kronberg, all of us who are involved in these projects, is that in the near future, the consumer is going to be able to walk into a grocery store and they're going to be able to scan a product from a barcode, trace it back to that farm and tell the direct phytonutrient compounds in that food. It is our hope that that'll directly positively impact your bottom line. If you're producing food that is higher in these phytonutrient compounds, we want you to be paid for it. We want you to receive a premium for your hard work, right? Shouldn't you be? Of course you should be. Because as Steve said, the more carbon he has in his soils, the better this is all gonna be. And it's better for society as well. Society is getting all of these ancillary benefits, better air quality, water quality, nutrient density of food, et cetera. We need to be paid for that as farmers and ranchers. You need to be paid for that. That's the groundbreaking research that's being done right now. That's what drives me and my partners. We are just 
laser focused on how we can bring this to the forefront. And if we're able to do that, think of that. Steve told a few of you beforehand, I just had a hip replaced a few weeks ago. And I tell you what, it's amazing what they can do medically, but we don't have a health care system in this world. We have a treatment system. It's nothing about preventative medicine. We need to get back to the point where food is being bought and consumed for its preventative medicine qualities. And when farmers and ranchers are paid according to that, that's when farmers and ranchers are really going to receive the monies and, quite honestly, the kudos that they deserve for doing what, they did, what they're doing to help all society. I'm off my soapbox with that one, Steve. <laughs> Excellent. Understand, this is the next level, and this is where we see this going. There you go. I knew you'd get us to the topic of the day. There you go. We transferred that. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Gabe. Excellent. So we're going to go back a couple of steps here. Larry Wagner asked a question. My question for you, Gabe, is what do you think about these groups and retailers who are now claiming to be regenerative? And selling regenerative products, but we know for sure they're not even close to starting on it or even know what they're even talking about. It's just uh, regenerative washing, what the product is, and just saying, yeah, we're doing that too. And I've okay. seen a lot of people doing that. And Larry, it's good to see you. I good to see you too. To you all, my friend. Great to see you again. So I changed hats. You'll notice I have a hat with an R on it. My partners and I at Understanding Ag realize Gabe Brown is about as anti-label, anti-certification as you can get. But what we saw, Larry, over time is that all this greenwashing. Let me give you this as an example, not to waste time here, but, you know, I told you how I spend a lot of my time now on the phone with CEOs, boards of directors. Three years ago, I had a call from a petroleum company that wanted to hire Understanding Ag to source regeneratively grown soybeans, which they would use to produce biofuel. So I put together a proposal. I told them, great, we can do this. We'll go educate your supply chain. We'll educate the producers, the soybeans in this case. We'll educate your soybean producers how they can grow regeneratively grown soybeans. We can prove that out. They will supply your biofuels refinery with regeneratively grown soybeans. So obviously that's a lot of moving parts. I pitch the proposal to them and they come back to me, oh no. All we're looking for is a list of farmers who are growing no-till soybeans, because if they're no-till, they're regenerative. And I <laughs> said, bull, you know what? I said, I will show you 20 plus years no-till that is more degraded than if you tilled that field multiple times per year because of the high use of synthetics. Well, they said, we're not willing to pay that. And I said, well, we're not going to do business with you. And we parted ways. So my partners and I decided that, you know, we've spent our adult lives 
touting the principles, rules to drive the processes and regeneration, how it works. So we put our money where our mouth is and we formed a company called Regenified. And Regenified's mission is to prove out regenerative practices on the landscape. Our whole goal is to have these food and fiber companies educate their supply chains and reward their supply chains for doing regenerative practices. And it all comes back to the six, three, four. So Larry, I've been on your place. I'm very, I'm familiar with it. You're obviously advancing soil health through your grazing lands very well. I've had a number of people who have told me they have never seen such poor, don't take this wrong, Larry, but such inherently poor soils produce so much as on Larry Wagner's place. That's a compliment, Larry. Okay. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and, and so you would do very well. So right now, I'm pleased to say that, for instance, Whole Foods accepted the Regenified protocols. You can now walk into Whole Foods and you can begin to see Regenified certified products on Whole Foods shelves. Our goal is that these companies are coming to us saying, okay, we want to supply regenerative foods to grocers, to clothing manufacturers, to you know, biofuels, manufacturers, et cetera. But we need to hold them accountable to that. And Regenified does just that. We're even seeing it in the timber industry. We just, Regenified just recently signed on 625,000 acres of timberland to have regeneratively grown timber. But realize who we are. We want the money to flow back to the producers. So these companies are paying a premium to the producers. We just had a number of our clients who delivered spring wheat for $22 a bushel. That's pretty good price for spring wheat to yes. uh, one of the companies who wanted regeneratively grown spring wheat for flower production. So we're trying, Larry. We're trying really hard. And Regenified is up and, and growing. And it's a long, slow process, but we're getting there. Okay. And I'm happy to announce that we are actually verifying uh, farms in Canada as Regenified certified also. Yep. Well, that's a good start. Thank you. I yep. have one more question for you before you leave. Have you had your North Dakota peach yet off your own land? Yeah, no, no peaches yet, but just a minute. Let me slide over here. I am proud to say though, I don't know if you can see this. <laughs> this is yes. Brown's Ranch for Taint Bourbon. Comes nice. with honey and produced from Brown's Ranch. So I'm getting there, Larry. It's not peaches, <laughs> but it's bourbon. Yes. Okay, Gabe, how do we get a hold of it? 
Come visit me, Steve. <laughs> I will. I am coming there. We, we are cracking one of those. That's for sure. And I tell you what, it is really good. It is really good. I got a little bit to add to Larry's question. Yes, there's a lot of greenwashing with regenerative. I started working on the Canadian Grazing Mentorship Program a couple of years ago, and we had working groups and Zoom calls and all sorts of groups together. And we were trying to figure out what to name it, what to call it, what to decide, you know, how to work this program. And it didn't take long that the in Canada, the East, the impression from the East that regenerative was already a bad word. They already associated it with greenwashing and it was it was a you know useless word already in the west we still like the word regenerative so um that was kind of a shocker for me so we, we weren't allowed to use the word regenerative because that was already greenwashed too much another story the uh i went to a conference here a few months ago we had a really big company i don't know if i should say the name or not on on here but anyway really big company that grows potatoes in uh, alberta they bragged at this conference about being regenerative. So, of course, I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, here we go. Let me quiz them. And I quizzed them, and I uh, happened to name drop one of my uh, regenerative heroes, uh, Brendan Rocky, potato farmer out of Colorado, who we've had on here before, too. And uh, the fellow who was representing this company basically described uh, Gabe Brown's structure of regenerative agriculture has hired Brendan Rocky numerous times to brought, bring him up here and taught some of their producers. And actually, I was very impressed at their answer about what regenerative agriculture was to them. They were doing a good job. So I'm not saying everybody's greenwashing regenerative agriculture. There's a lot of companies out there that will jump on board and market whatever they can. But I was very impressed with this, uh, this fella. And then I asked him, okay, what percentage of your farmers are actually doing all of that? And he 100% admitted to me, he said, they're all at different stages. Some of them are at the very beginning of this, and some of them are fairly advanced. Nobody, like I, I actually got it out of them, nobody was where Brendan Rocky is. But yep. they were at different and, stages through that. Yeah, and if I just may... Expand on that a little bit, Steve. So it just so happens I talked to Brandon yesterday. And one of the differences between most regenerative verifications and regenified is regenified demands you to keep moving forward. It is our goal to advance everybody. One of the fallacies, and quite frankly, I was in a over two and a half hours of discussion today because the state of California wants to define regenerative agriculture. And one of their baselines is in order to have the word regenerative, you have to be organic. Now, I am the first to admit that it is our goal to move everybody down that pathway and funnel them to regenerative it truly has to be regenerative as far as the six, three driving the four and to use less and less synthetic inputs. However, if you're going to create a baseline where in order to start down the program, you have to be organic, let's take this fact into consideration. In the United States, 0.0065% of cropland is 
regenerative organic. They're not moving the needle whatsoever. Less than 3% of the land in the U.S. is organic production. That's not moving the needle. If you don't have it available to everybody and give them an onboarding path, you're not going to move forward. And shouldn't that be the goal of all of us? How do we all move forward? And for the betterment of all, common ground for common good, right? Isn't that what we're all about? Let's come together and work together. And so that's what it's about. So I really think we got to quit bickering about things and we got to come together and move everybody forward for the betterment of all. Good point. One little thing here. I was at a organic conference about four or five years ago. I remember that uh, uh, her name was uh, Laura Rance. She was speaking at the organic conference and her opening statement kind of blew me away. So we're at the organic Alberta conference. Everything was all organic. Her opening statement was if you were an organic farmer and you were not using regenerative principles, you're missing the boat. That has stuck with me. Organics great, right? There's all sorts of great things about organics, but there, there's, they're missing some of the points of regenerative. It's a mindset change. It would be very, very easy for Brown's Ranch to be certified organic. All I would have to do is fill out the paperwork. However, if I do that, 95% of the people will turn me out. They, they're not going to listen to me anymore. And then how can I be a vocal supporter for all if 95% of the people turn me off? The other thing I tell people is show me one organic farm, and I'm talking about cropland here, not perennials. Show me one organic farm that whose soil health can compare to that on Brown's Ranch. You show me that person, then I'm a believer. Gabe Brown has been on thousands of farms all over the world. I have never, ever been on an organic farm that can come close to the soil health that we have on our ranch. I agree with that, Steve, is what I'm saying. If, if you're not using regenerative practices, it's very, very difficult to really advance ecosystem function. Ken Van Driesten, if you can unmute yourself. Yeah, I just had a, a question interested in any updates from Gabe on his orchard and silviculture, silvopasture experiments. Because I'm also, I'm in southern Alberta on the dry prairie as well and interested in adding trees and to add a profit center to pasture-based farm and wondering how things have come along. I haven't really heard an update from you in the past few years. And I don't know if that's yep. for good reasons or bad, but yep. I'm just curious what you have to say. Yeah, thanks, Ken, for that question. And um, Gabe Brown's going to eat crow here one of the many times that I've had to do so. It's a good thing Mrs. Brown isn't standing in the room because in 2015, 2016, uh, Gabe had the bright idea that for my retirement, I'd plant this orchard of heirloom organic apples and other fruits, and then that would be my retirement plan. Well, Ray Archuleta, a good friend of mine and one of my original partners in Understanding Ag, preached to us for years we needed to add the sixth principle, that of context. I wish I would have listened more closely to Ray 
because I'm in the northern Great Plains. It's a prairie. There's not many trees. We planted 1,500 plus heirloom apple trees at a cost of approximately $50 a piece in 2015 and 2016 and realize um, I purposely set this up that, you know, on our ranch, it's survival of the fittest. So there's no irrigation system, no supplemental water. The years 2020, 2021, 2022 were the three driest years ever recorded. Yep. And Brian's shaking his head. He knows what's coming. And we went from 1,500 plus trees down to probably 100. And so also Gabe at that time, you know, started, Ray and I and David Brandt started understanding ag. And so Gabe's traveling all the time and we're not supplemental, you know, giving water to these trees. And you can guess what happened. That was an expensive lesson that Mrs. Brown reminds me of over and over again. In saying that, those that survived, we are getting some apples and the Browns Ranch Boar Taint. I've got a honey apple version we're working on. So that's the next thing coming about. It'll just be a minimal release though, because it's not like I have an overabundance of apples. Thanks, Gabe. So Ken, in other words, epic failure because of lack of context. Yeah. Do you have any plans to look at doing something again with more adapted tree shrub species or that you've kind of moved on from that project? Well, Gabe and Shelley moved to town, so that'll answer that question. There you go. <laughs> That's a good example of the uh, adoption curve. The innovators and early adopters and, you know, the early majority, late majority and laggards. The yeah. uh, innovators and early adopters, they... Uh, they make a lot of mistakes and most people don't see those. Yeah. And that's, that's one of my frustrations right now. And I'm actually working with government and researchers right now, heavily in Alberta. Anyway, I can't say it enough to them that these innovators and early adopters have made enough mistakes. They've paid for these mistakes. It's cost them a lot of money. It's about time. The taxpayer pays for these mistakes. And I'm pushing some of these. Uh, that's the beauty of the living labs in Canada right now. Every province has one or two of them, right? They're all across Canada. The living labs, the whole idea is to match up a group of researchers with some innovators and early adopters that, you know, have these great ideas. But we get researchers out onto the farm to actually throw science behind it and have it measurable and, and recorded. And I think we're going to advance the knowledge and the, you know, the educational transfer of these early adopters so much faster because we have the research there. We're going to speed up uh, extension by 30 years because we have researchers on the farms with innovators and early adopters. So I'm really excited about the living labs and that's exactly what we're doing here. Just speeding it up. That's actually a great segue to Barbara's question. It took a near catastrophe financially, Gabe, for you to start down the regenerative road. And that's true of a number of the leaders of our field. And so what I wanna know is where's the juice today? Is it still gonna be financial catastrophe? Or are you seeing some response with other 
because uh, it's not logic. It's not about logic. It's not about information. It's mindset. Mm -hmm. So speak to us about that, if you would. Yeah, great question, Barbara. And, and um, you know, I get asked this question multiple times every day. Okay, if regenerative agriculture is so good, why are more farmers and ranchers doing it and using these practices? And I tell them, realize we cannot blame the farmers and ranchers. Farmers and ranchers cannot implement what they do not know. I didn't know the principles, rules, processes when I started down this path. You know, I have a couple college degrees. My son has several college degrees. Never was that taught. You know, I sent my son Paul to listen to Steve to learn these things, you know. They're not teaching this in college. So it becomes one of how do we educate, get the word out. I think what we're on this evening is a great way to do that. In saying that, you know, Gabe Brown's pretty old. I've been at this a long, long time. But you know what, the last five years, we finally got that snowball to the top of the hill and it's starting to roll downhill. Understanding Ag, we're consulting on 34 million acres across North America. That's a lot of acres. And that's just what we're consulting on. That doesn't include any of you who are listening, who are implementing. You know, I talked about Larry and about Paul and Brian and all these others who are using these regenerative practices. The balloon, we're getting much, much bigger. You throw a pebble in a pond and the ripple effect. It's really taking off. These companies are coming to us. I get emails, phone calls every day, companies. Okay, how do we source regeneratively grown and raised products. It's coming and it's exciting and it's only gonna accelerate and go forward from here. So it's a good thing. I hope and pray that nobody else has to go through what my wife and I went through in order to start down this path because that wasn't fun whatsoever. It was the best thing that ever happened to us, but it wasn't fun by any means. I don't wish that on anyone. Yeah, I agree 100%, Gabe. The last five years, we've seen exponential growth in regenerative ag. I know Gabe's not a big fan of uh, government programs, but in Canada right now, I have never seen so much money thrown at regenerative programs. And I'm not entirely against them because that early majority that sits on the fence wondering, should we try it or not? It's the trigger that gets them to try it. Yep. And I think right now that's where we're sitting. We got the innovators and early adopters doing some cool stuff and having some fun and actually making some success. And those early adopters are sitting there going, what the heck are these guys doing? A little bit of funding helps them, you know, jump over that fence and, and try something. So, yeah, I just can't believe how much money's being thrown at this right now. And I'm super excited because, right, Gabe, 20 years ago, this was like banging your head against a wall, right? Yep. That's why I have no hair. I think he had to leave, but Coley had one more question, and that was, is there a potential place in your Regenified certification for Dan Kittredge's nutrient density meter as an extra measure of the regenerative process being certified? Yes, and we're actually beyond that in working with Dr. Van Vliet. Dr. Van Vliet and his team have the ability to uh, identify over 2,300 
different phytonutrient compounds. So I'm a big supporter of Dan, but this is way beyond that, quite frankly. Brian, you had a question next. I was just wondering what the cost to get your farm uh, certified, regenified. And what we're telling, so much for you know, realize that's a separate standalone company. I would have to put you in touch with Salar Shimarani as our CEO. I could put you in touch with him. If you email me, Gabe at understandingag.com, I will uh, forward that on. I don't want to speak for them because it's a separate company. Okay. With direct sales, since heifers take longer to grow, do you sell your cull heifers and buy steers or do you keep them and finish them? Realize the ranch is our son's now. Shelly and I retired five years ago now from the ranch and all of their production, 90 plus percent, is run through the direct marketing business. So everything from tall cows, heifers, everything goes direct to consumers. Lori, do you want to unmute yourself? Hi there. Thank you so much, Gabe. Um, my question was back to when you were talking about what what's happening with the Regenify and consumers being able to look for those nutrients. I had put in the chat, how long do you think that's going to take? And then you kind of answered it, that it's already starting to happen. How long do you think it would take for it to really, really get going? Because I, I, I think... Mm -hmm. I think it's a great idea, but I think it's yeah. a bit far off for a lot of consumers, at least here in Canada. Yeah. And, you know, I think Steve hit the nail on the head when he said five years ago, we wouldn't have believed where we'd be at today. I tell you, it is happening, Lori, much, much quicker than we could envision. It's happening at warp speed. And... I am already in communication with a number of food companies that these food companies know. They, they have their ear to the pulse of the consumer. They know that consumers are demanding this and realize you don't need all consumers to demand this. Right. If 15 to 20% of them demand this, that'll create change. So they're already coming to us saying, hey, we heard about this. We want to be at the forefront. How do we start down this path? We're already in discussions with technology that has the ability and is developing, I should say, the ability to quantify this at scale on the assembly line. So it'll actually be able to in real time that fast to read this. So I think it's gonna happen much, much quicker than any of us could have envisioned a couple oh, of that's years. Exciting. Great, yeah. that's exciting, yeah. thank you. Have me on in another three years, Steve, and it'll already be out there. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Like, I don't know how fast this is going, but uh, it's going way faster than it was 20 years ago, for sure. Well, well look, at, look at what you talked about, Steve, seeding cover crops with drones. Three years ago, that was just an idea. It wasn't happening. Now you're doing it, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, we're just, we're advancing. The fact that there's funding programs to pay for that and the help of that, I mean, it's just, it's encouraging. I had a fella come to me uh, a little while ago here. He said, you know what? Uh, 
I couldn't believe it. I heard the the UN talking about stuff that you know how important it is and this, this carbon stuff that we're dealing with, and and you were talking about that twenty years ago. <laughs> like, yeah, they didn't listen to me, but they listened to somebody, probably some guy like Gabe Brown that was you know telling the right things. So pretty happy that our message is finally getting through, and we're not banging our head against the wall anymore. The next question was from Tom, and it was around protocols for being regenified. Is that kind of the same answer, Gabe, in that you will send some information that I can yeah. then share with everybody who's on the call if they're interested? Well, and, and you can go on the Regenified website. And Regenified is a made-up word. That was on purpose because of trademarks, etc. It's much quicker to get something approved if you make it up. So that protocol is all outlined on there. But suffice it to say, everyone who applies is accepted to start. But then it is an annual verification. Now, the verifier will come out and they do an assessment of how well is your farmer ranch implementing uh, the six principles of soil health, the three rules of adaptive stewardship to drive the four ecosystem processes. There's approximately 65 different points, scientific tests, observations, uh, plus your history they take into account, your context. And then from that, they may put you in tier two, three, four, or five right away. And if they do, you're verified. You're already off and running. You can put the seal on your label. You can sell your product, your commodity as such immediately. And so for those of us who have been going down the path a while, you're probably going to be in and, and off and running. But then you have to move forward. You only have three years to be able to move to the next tier. But that's the good thing. It's driving everybody forward. What we're seeing is it's not nearly as difficult as what most people imagined. Now, if you're out there tilling every year, using copious amounts of synthetics, now nah, then it's going to be a bit tougher. But you take the Larry Wagners of the world, Paul Ackley's and all those who have been down this path a while, they'd be surprised at where they'd fall in immediately. One of the advantages of regenerative agriculture, Gabe, though, is we don't have to be perfect. Right. I mean, you know, if, if there's one bad practice, if you do three good practices with it, you're you might be moving forward. I know we're going to I'm going to bring him up again. I've been criticized for having a bit of a man crush on uh, Brendan Rocky. <laughs> but you know what? He does tillage. He's a potato farmer, but he does so many other good things that he's gaining. He's improving his land. And this is where Ray Archuleta was so right when he insisted we adopt the the principle of context. You're not gonna have a root vegetable without doing some type of tillage because you gotta harvest that root vegetable. In saying that though, I absolutely agree with you. Brendan is light years ahead of other producers, the potato producers, root vegetable producers. Context, environment, that's taken into account in the regenified protocol. and. Steve, you know Doug Peterson from Missouri, longtime NRCS soil health consultant. A Doug we hired to help us develop those protocols. 
And he said it has to take context into account. Chase L., you had a question. How uh, concerned should we be with GMOs? Like I talked to a producer that stone milled wheat, but I'm pretty sure it was a GMO wheat variety they were doing. Are you specifically, Chase Hack, asking as far as the regenified protocol? No, just I guess in general, how worried we should be about them or you know i firmly believe that decisions like that are up to each individual farmer rancher but then in turn it's up inevitably to the consumer public what do they want if you have a market for gmo products so be it if the consumers want to purchase it Gabe Brown, who am I to say you should or shouldn't consume this or grow this? I'm not going to say that. It's between the consumer and the producer. So that's where I would leave that. That's up to you. Now, if you ask Gabe Brown, do we grow GMOs on our farmer ranch? No, if I did, we wouldn't be able to sell anything direct to consumer, at least with our clientele, but that's our clientele. So that decision has to be yours. I guess uh, what threw me off was they threw in the variety of wheat when they said it was a regenerative product at a farmer's market. And I don't, I think it was a GMO variety of wheat. There, there are no GMO wheats, so it must okay. have been mistaken. Well, that's my fault, yeah. There's GMO, you know, corn and canola and a number of other soybeans, et cetera, but not wheat. At least not legally. There's something I learned right there. I did not know. I, th- I figured wheat would be for sure a, a bunch of GMOs. So not I'm genetically not modified. Larry Wagner, you had another question. Yeah, Gabe, I was wondering how your winter barley is panned out. Has that still functioning as a variety or is, have you actually got a variety now? Well, Larry, have I jumped through all the hoops? No, but I'm proud to say that I have as of yet, it has never winter killed on me. Okay, now in saying that, Larry, you know, the early years, so I took southern winter barley varieties, brought them up here, grew them, saved the seed that overwintered and made it, harvested it. You know, and not all of it did those early years, but enough of it did that I could propagate and build up. But now, man, the last four years, it's just, it's produced every year. So I've got winter barley varieties. In saying that, realize the, the ranch is now Paul's. He hasn't quite grown as much as I would have. Paul's not into grain farming as much as I was, but he did seed a bunch this fall and it's up and looking good. And so it's working well. Is it a competitive for yield wise as your other barleys? Well, realize, Larry, when you ask me that question, you're talking to a guy who only grows pretty much seed that I have raised and grown and propagated for years. So my spring barley varieties are varieties that I've saved seed for 20 plus years. So I'm only comparing that. It's a little lighter in test weight. We have seen that but it yields every bit as well. I know here this year, 2023, Paul grew winter barley and then he interceded oats, 
spring peas and flax with it. And he averaged 87 bushels an acre on that. Wow, that's great. So that was pretty good. For yes. hog and chicken feed, that's pretty good. Thank you very much. What I'm hearing there, Gabe, is the next generation is doing a better job. <laughs> uh, do you really want me to admit to that, Steve? Oh, come on. A little, little, it might little, be late uh, in the day, but... Gabe Brown isn't going to fall for that one. Little plug for Paul. He's my he's my buddy. Yeah, Steve. But what if Paul Brown is listening? Okay. <laughs> Larry, you had a question. Yes, Gabe. I'm trying to convince. We're in Georgia, a lot smaller farms than you have. And people that are afraid to go down the regenerative field. I mean, for farming cows or for grain. They're scared they're going to lose money. So kind of explain some of the people that you've consulted and the results they're having year one through year five. And they can do it without going broke, okay? Yep, Larry, uh, great question. And here's how I'll answer that. Six years ago, David Brandt, Ray Archuleta, and myself founded Soil Health Consultants with then, along with that, Dr. Alan Williams became Understanding Ag. We had zero acres, zero clients. Today we're at 34 million. Do you really think if we couldn't make our clients money, we had been able to grow that fast? We are extremely good at increasing profitability. I'm not gonna say we're gonna increase profitability the first year, but we better be doing it by the second year or we wouldn't be in business. We wouldn't be able to grow. Dr. Jonathan Lundgren has some excellent research out there that shows Farmers and ranchers who use regenerative practices have a 78% greater profitability. 78%. I'll take that to the bank every day. We're able to look at, okay, how can farmers and ranchers cut inputs? How can they find their quote unquote low hanging fruit? And Steve knows all about this. Where on your farm or ranch are there areas that you're not taking advantage of, that you could be utilizing to a greater extent? And here, I'm gonna say something here because it's one of the things we see over and over again when we go on a new client's property. As farmers and ranchers, we look at our farm or ranch, we identify those areas. Oh, that's my poorest field. I need to increase production there. We say, oh no, you need to go to your best producing area and is that producing up to your potential? Whether it's a crop field or a pasture, you need to focus on those higher producing areas first. Those low producing areas are the last thing you need to spend your time or money on because it will bring you the least return for your time and dollars invested. So we're very good at focusing. How do we help our clients focus on areas that will bring them more money immediately? My wife and I, at the end of those four years, we were $1.5 million in debt. In 1998, that was a lot of money. And by 2007, we were almost out of debt. And we did that by focusing on where are priorities, and then we didn't spend money. She didn't get an anniversary or birthday present for a lot of years, you know, plain and simple. She stuck with me, though, Steve, despite that. Well, there's several good videos out there, and then we're excited in the South about the roots so deep you can see the devil down there. Yeah. 
I think that's getting the word out, and we hope to have it come to our area soon, too. But thank you. Dr. Williams and what they've done with Roots So Deep is fantastic. And I'll put a plug in. If any of you have seen the, the documentary Kiss the Ground, the quote-unquote sequel, Common Ground, is out now. It's being shown in movie theaters across North America, and it calls out the conventional production model. I'll just say that. <laughs> We're going to have a showing on the 8th of January to Congress in the U.S., and I'll be going there for that. Nice. So, Gabe, I'm going to add to that by saying it's not hard to beat conventional ag. I know you've shared it, the graph by uh, Darren Qualman out mm-hmm. of Saskatchewan. That graph, if anybody's ever seen it, Darren Qualman did a, a research project and, and showed the net farm income of Canadian farmers. Between 1985 and 2007, the Canadian farmer brought home zero percent of the net farm income. Everything went to big ag. So when you switch to regenerative agriculture, it's not hard to beat that. (laughs) So we've got an advantage there is that modern agriculture now is not profitable. After 207, the grain guys did get some profit. They were kicking in. I don't think the beef guy got very much. And, you know, on average, it's up and down. But in general, you know, regenerative agriculture has some really positive results when you actually jump in and and not just pick one part of it, right? If you pick one part of it and try and add that to your farm, it might not fix it. But if you jump in with both feet and actually do the principles and the concepts and, and make that work, you work with nature, yeah, it can be profitable. You're absolutely right, Steve. Uh, Hats off to Darren and all the great work he does up there in Canada. He's really done some amazing research and the facts to back it up. But I will add to that a little bit, Steve. In my heart, my mind, what's even more important, we're regenerating our ecosystems and we're allowing the opportunity for the next generation to come back to the farm or ranch, and then they can truly be sustainable. And I think that's something that often gets overlooked. You know, here I am, city slicker now, and I'm kind of in a little retirement part of town here. And a number of my neighbors are retired farmers and ranchers. How many of them have sons and daughters who took over the farmer ranch. Uh, Shelly and I are the only ones. And I had I had one of them actually say to me, I had a son who really wanted to farm, but I needed that money. And I'm thinking, how sad is that? How sad is that? That wasn't my decision. I don't know all the circumstances. But in saying that, I put part of the blame on that person for not making it conducive to the next generation, for not showing them that there can be profitability, and then not allowing their son, in this case, the opportunity to come back and help at least, you know, show them that, hey, I can add to the operation. I can take it to the next level. I can add more income. That's just so wrong in in my mind anyway. I'm going to uh, wrap up the official part of the evening here. We're going to turn the recording off in a second. There are a pile more questions in the chat, and we will continue to try and get through some of them as we 
as we converse afterwards. But uh, to wrap up the formal part of the evening, as is tradition, any final thoughts and inspiration for those who are listening, Steve and, and then Gabe? Uh, thanks, Stacey. That's been a fantastic night. Gabe, really excited to have you here. I'm so grateful that, uh, you know, you're willing to come in and uh, participate with us. Just valuable information. This networking is so important and I, I want to keep it going. I want to continue it on for, uh, you know, another four years. That'd be great if we could do this. So really excited and grateful that you were here. Just many blessings on you and your family. And uh, thank you so much for being here. Um, good turnout. Thank you so much for everybody that came. This is a uh, powerful group of people here. There's a lot of knowledge in here. Stick around for After Networking Networking because that's where you can have some private conversations. And, you know, we've got lots of people who have said that they've had connections and people have got jobs through here. And I haven't heard of any marriages yet, but uh, maybe that's down the, down the road here sometime too. But Really appreciative to everybody that comes out to these. It's it's really rewarding to to have a night where where you know well most of the nights where so many people show up and participate. Gabe, turn it over to you. Closing thoughts. Uh, thank you, Steve and Stacy. I just want to say, I, you know, to me, this is what makes regenerative agriculture so special is the ability to network. Gabe Brown doesn't have all the answers. The more I know, the more I know I don't know. My wife will certainly tell you that I don't have all the answers, okay? But in saying that, it's the ability to network, come together, bounce ideas off each other. I learned things tonight. It's, it's just a joy to be with you all. And anytime, if there's anything any of myself or our team can help you with, please reach out. Great to be a part of this. Mm-hmm.